A Midsummer Night's Dream from Charles and Mary Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare, complete two volumes in one, published 1894 by Donahue, Henneberry, and Company, Chicago. There was a law in the city of Athens which gave to its citizens the power of compelling their daughters to marry whomsoever they pleased. For upon a daughter's refusing to marry the man her father had chosen to be her husband, the father was empowered by this law to cause her to be put to death. But as fathers do not often desire the death of their own daughters, even though they do happen to prove a little refractory, this law was seldom or never put into execution. Though perhaps the young ladies of that city were not unfrequently threatened by their parents with the terrors of it. There was one instance, however, of an old man whose name was Aegeus, who actually did come before Theseus, at that time the reigning Duke of Athens, to complain that his daughter Hermia, whom he had commanded to marry Demetrius, a young man of a noble Athenian family, refused to obey him because she loved another young Athenian named Lysander. Aegeus demanded justice of Theseus and desired that this cruel law might be put in force against his daughter. Hermia pleaded in excuse for her disobedience that Demetrius had formerly professed love for her dear friend Helena, and that Helena loved Demetrius to distraction. But this honorable reason which Hermia gave for not obeying her father's command moved not the stern Aegeus. Theseus, though a great and merciful prince, had no power to alter the laws of his country. Therefore, he could only give Hermia four days to consider it. And at the end of that time, if she still refused to marry Demetrius, she was to be put to death. When Hermia was dismissed from the presence of the duke, she went to her lover Lysander and told him the peril she was in, and that she must either give him up and marry Demetrius or lose her life in four days. Lysander was in great affliction at hearing these evil tidings, but recollecting that he had an aunt who lived at some distance from Athens, and that at the place where she lived, the cruel law could not be put in force against Hermia, this law not extending beyond the boundaries of the city, he proposed to Hermia that she should steal out of her father's house that night and go with him to his aunt's house where he would marry her. I will meet you, said Lysander, in the wood a few miles without the city, in that delightful wood where we have so often walked with Helena in the pleasant month of May. To this proposal Hermia joyfully agreed, and she told no one of her intended flight but her friend Helena. Helena, as maidens will do foolish things for love, very ungenerously resolved to go and tell this to Demetrius, though she could hope no benefit from betraying her friend's secret, but the poor pleasure of following her faithless lover to the wood, for she well knew that Demetrius would go thither in pursuit of Hermia. The wood in which Lysander and Hermia proposed to meet was the favorite haunt of those little beings known by the name of fairies. Oberon the king and Titania the queen of the fairies, with all their tiny train of followers in this wood, held their midnight revels. Between this little king and queen of sprites there happened, at this time, a sad disagreement. They never met by moonlight in the shady walks of this pleasant wood, but they were quarreling, till all their fairy elves would creep into acorn cups and hide themselves for fear. The cause of this unhappy disagreement 
was Titania's refusing to give Oberon a little changeling boy whose mother had been Titania's friend, and upon her death the fairy queen stole the child from its nurse and brought him up in the woods. The night on which the lovers were to meet in this wood, as Titania was walking with some of her maids of honor, she met Oberon attended by his train of fairy courtiers. "'Ill met by moonlight, proud Titania,' said the fairy king. The queen replied, "'What, jealous Oberon, is it you? Fairies, skip hence, I have forsworn his company.' "'Terry, rash fairy,' said Oberon, "'am not I thy lord?' Why does Titania cross her Oberon? Give me your little changeling boy to be my page. Set your heart at rest, answered the queen. Your whole fairy kingdom buys not the boy of me. She then left her lord in great anger. Well, go your way, said Oberon. Before the morning dawns, I will torment you for this injury. Oberon then sent for Puck, his chief favorite and privy counselor. Puck, or as he was sometimes called Robin Goodfellow, was a shrewd and knavish sprite and used to play comical pranks in the neighboring villages, sometimes getting into the dairies and skimming the milk, sometimes plunging his light and airy form into the butter churn, and while he was dancing his fantastic shape in the churn, in vain the dairymaid would labor to change her cream into butter. Nor had the village swains any better success. Whenever Puck chose to play his freaks in the brewing copper, the ale was sure to be spoiled. When a few good neighbors were met to drink some comfortable ale together, Puck would jump into the bowl of ale in the likeness of a roasted crab. And when some old goody was going to drink, he would bob against her lips and spill the ale over her withered chin. And presently after, when the same old dame was gravely seating herself to tell her neighbors a sad and melancholy story, Puck would slip her three-legged stool from under her and down toppled the poor old woman. And then the old gossips would hold their sides and laugh at her and swear they never wasted a merrier hour. Come hither, Puck, said Oberon to this little merry wanderer of the night. Fetch me the flower which maids call love and idleness. The juice of that little purple flower laid on the eyelids of those who sleep will make them, when they wake, dote on the first thing they see. Some of the juice of that flower I will drop on the eyelids of my Titania when she is asleep and the first thing she looks upon when she opens her eyes she will fall in love with, even though it be a lion or a bear or a meddling monkey or a busy ape. And before I will take this charm off her sight, which I can do with another charm I know of, I will make her give that boy to me to be my page." Puck, who loved mischief to his heart, was highly diverted with this intended frolic of his master and ran to seek the flower. And while Oberon was waiting the return of Puck, he observed Demetrius and Helena entering the wood. He overheard Demetrius reproaching Helena for following him, and after many unkind words on his part, and gentle expostulations from Helena, reminding him of his former love and professions of true faith to her, he left her, as he said, to the mercy of the wild beasts, and she ran after him as swiftly as she could. The fairy king, who was always friendly to true lovers, felt great compassion for Helena, and perhaps, as Lysander said they used to walk by moonlight in this pleasant wood, Oberon might have seen Helena in those happy times when she was beloved by Demetrius. However that might be, when Puck returned with the little purple flower, Oberon said to his favorite, 
pick a part of this flower. There has been a sweet Athenian lady here who is in love with a disdainful youth. If you find him sleeping, drop some of the love juice in his eyes, but contrive to do it when she is near him, that the first thing he sees when he awakes may be this despised lady. You will know the man by the Athenian garments which he wears. Puck promised to manage this matter very dexterously, and then Oberon went, unperceived by Titania, to her bower, where she was preparing to go to rest. Her fairy bower was a bank where grew wild thyme, cowslips, and sweet violets under a canopy of woodbine, musk roses, and eglantine. There, Titania always slept some part of the night, her coverlet the enameled skin of a snake, which, though a small mantle, was wide enough to wrap a fairy in. He found Titania giving orders to her fairies, how they were to employ themselves while she slept. Some of you, said Her Majesty, must kill cankers in the musk rosebuds, and some wage war with the bats for their leathern wings to make my small elves coats. And some of you keep watch that the clamorous owl that nightly hoots come not near me, but first sing me to sleep. Then they began to sing this song. You spotted snakes with a double tongue, thorny hedgehogs be not seen. Newts and blindworms do no wrong, come not near our fairy queen. Philomel with melody, sing in your sweet lullaby. Lulla, lulla, lullaby. Lulla, lulla, lullaby. Never harm, nor spell, nor charm, come our lovely lady nigh. So good night with lullaby. When the fairies had sung their queen to sleep with this pretty lullaby, they left her to perform the important services she had enjoined them. Oberon then softly drew near his Titania and dropped some of the love juice on her eyelids, saying, What thou seest when thou dost wake, do it for thy true love's sake. But to return to Hermia, he made her escape out of her father's house that night to avoid the death she was doomed to for refusing to marry Demetrius. When she entered the wood, she found her dear Lysander waiting for her to conduct her to his aunt's house. But before they had passed half through the wood, Hermia was so fatigued that Lysander, who was very careful of his dear lady, who had proved her affection to him even by hazarding her life for his sake, persuaded her to rest till morning on a bank of soft moss. And lying down himself on the ground at some little distance, they soon fell fast asleep. Here they were found by Puck, who, seeing a handsome young man asleep, and perceiving that his clothes were made in the Athenian fashion, and that a pretty lady was sleeping near him, concluded that this must be the Athenian maid and her disdainful lover, whom Oberon had sent him to seek, and he naturally enough conjectured that, as they were alone together, she must be the first thing he would see when he awoke. So without more ado, he proceeded to pour some of the juice of the little purple flower into his eyes. But it so fell out that Helena came that way, and instead of Hermia, was the first object Lysander beheld when he opened his eyes, and strange to relate, so powerful was the love charm that all his love for Hermia vanished away, and Lysander fell in love with Helena. Had he first seen Hermia when he awoke, the blunder Puck committed would have been of no consequence, for he could not love that faithful lady too well. But for poor Lysander to be forced by a fairy love charm to forget his own true Hermia and to run after another lady and leave Hermia asleep quite alone in a wood at midnight was a sad chance indeed. Thus, this misfortune happened. Helena, as has been 
before related, endeavored to keep pace with Demetrius when he ran away so rudely from her. But she could not continue this unequal race long, men being always better runners in a long race than ladies. Helena soon lost sight of Demetrius, and as she was wandering about, dejected and forlorn, she arrived at the place where Lysander was sleeping. Ah, said she, this is Lysander lying on the ground. Is he dead or asleep? Then gently touching him, she said, Good sir, if you are alive, awake. Upon this, Lysander opened his eyes, and the love charm beginning to work, immediately addressed her in terms of extravagant love and admiration, telling her she as much excelled Hermia in beauty as a dove does a raven, and that he would run through fire for her sweet sake, and many more such lover-like speeches. Helena, knowing Lysander was her friend Hermia's lover, and that he was solemnly engaged to marry her, was in the utmost rage when she heard herself addressed in this manner, for she thought, as she well might, that Lysander was making a jest of her. "'Oh,' said she, "'why was I born to be mocked and scorned by everyone? Is it not enough, is it not enough, young man, that I can never get a sweet look or a kind word from Demetrius?' But you, sir, must pretend in this disdainful manner to court me. I thought, Lysander, you were a lord of more true gentleness. Saying these words in great anger, she ran away, and Lysander followed her, quite forgetful of his own Hermia, who was still asleep. When Hermia woke, she was in a sad fright at finding herself alone. She wondered about the wood, not knowing what was become of Lysander, or which way to go to seek for him. In the meantime, Demetrius, not being able to find Hermia and his rival Lysander, and fatigued with his fruitless search, was observed by Oberon, fast asleep. Oberon had learnt by some questions he had asked of Puck that he had applied the love charm to the wrong person's eyes, and now having found the person first intended... He touched the eyelids of the sleeping Demetrius with the love juice, and he instantly awoke. And first thing he saw being Helena, he, as Lysander had done before, began to address love speeches to her. And just at that moment, Lysander, followed by Hermia, for through Puck's unlucky mistake, it was now become Hermia's turn to run after her lover, made his appearance, and then Lysander and Demetrius, both speaking together, made love to Helena, they being each one under the influence of the same potent charm. The astonished Helena thought that Demetrius, Lysander, and her once dear friend Hermia were all in a plot together to make a jest of her. Hermia was as much as surprised as Helena. She knew not why Lysander and Demetrius, who both before loved her, were now become the lovers of Helena, and to Hermia the matter seemed to be no jest. The ladies, who before had always been the dearest of friends, now fell to high words together. Unkind, Hermia, said Helena. It is you have set Lysander on to vex me with mock praises, and your other lover Demetrius, who used almost to spurn me with his foot, have you not bid him call me goddess, nymph, rare, precious, and celestial? He would not speak thus to me, whom he hates, if you did not set him on to make jest of me. 
unkind, Hermia, to join with men in scorning your poor friend. Have you forgot our school day friendship? How often, Hermia, have we two sitting on one cushion, both singing one song with our needles working the same flower, both on the same sampler wrought, growing up together in fashion of a double cherry, scarcely seeming parted. Hermia, it is not friendly in you. It is not maidenly to join with men in scorning your poor friend. I am amazed at your passionate words, said Hermia. I scorn you not. It seems you scorn me. I do, returned Helena. Persevere, counterfeit serious looks, and make mouths at me when I turn my back, then wink at each other and hold the sweet jest up. If you had any pity, grace, or manners, you would not use me thus. While Helena and Hermia were speaking these angry words to each other, Demetrius and Lysander left them to fight together in the wood for the love of Helena. When they found the gentlemen had left them, they departed and once more wandered weary in the wood in search of their lovers. As soon as they were gone, the fairy king, who with little Puck had been listening to their quarrels, said to him, This is your negligence, Puck. Or did you do this willfully? Believe me, king of shadows, answered Puck. It was a mistake. Did you not tell me I should know the man by his Athenian garments? However, I am not sorry this has happened, for I think their jangling makes me excellent sport. You heard, said Oberon, that Demetrius and Lysander are gone to seek a convenient place to fight in. I command you to overhang the night with a thick fog and lead these quarrelsome lovers so astray in the dark that they shall not be able to find each other. Counterfeit each of their voices to the other and with bitter taunts provoke them to follow you while they think it is their rival's tongue they hear. See you do this till they are so weary that they can go no farther. And when you find they are asleep, Drop the juice of this other flower into Lysander's eyes, and when he awakes, he will forget his new love for Helena, and return to his old passion for Hermia. And then the two fair ladies may each one be happy with the man she loves, and they will think all that has passed a vexatious dream. About this quickly, Puck, and I will go and see what sweet love my Titania has found. Titania was still sleeping, and Oberon, seeing a clown near her, who had lost his way in the wood, and was likewise asleep, and this fellow, said he, shall be my Titania's true love, and clapping an ass head over the clowns, it seemed to fit him as well as if it had grown upon his own shoulders. Though Oberon fixed the ass's head on very gently, it awakened him, and rising up, unconscious of what Oberon had done to him, he went towards the bower where the fairy queen slept. Ah! "'What angel is this that I see?' said Titania, opening her eyes and the juice of the little purple flower beginning to take effect. "'Are you as wise as you are beautiful?' "'Why, mistress,' said the foolish clown, "'if I have wit enough to find the way out of this wood, I have enough to serve my turn.' "'Out of the wood you do not desire to go,' said the enamored queen. "'I am a spirit of no common rate. I love you. Go with me, and I will give you fairies to attend upon you.' She then called four of her fairies. Their names were Peas Blossom, Cobweb, Moth, and Mustard Seed. Attend, said the queen, upon this sweet gentleman. Hop in his walks and gamble in his sight. Feed him with grapes and apricots and steal for him the honey bags from the bees. Come sit with me, she said to the clown, and let me play with your amiable hairy cheeks, my beautiful ass, and kiss your fair large ears, my gentle joy. "'Where is Peas Blossom?' 
said the ass-headed clown, not much regarding the fairy queen's courtship, but very proud of his new attendance. Here, sir, said Little Peas Blossom. Scratch my head, said the clown. Where is Cobweb? Here, sir, said Cobweb. Good, Mr. Cobweb, said the foolish clown. Kill me the red humblebee on the top of that thistle yonder. And good, Mr. Cobweb, bring me the honey bag. Do not fret yourself too much in the action, Mr. Cobweb, and take care the honey bag break not. I should be sorry to have you overflown with a honey bag. Where is Mustard Seed? Here, sir, said Mustard Seed. What is your will? Nothing, said the clown, good Mr. Mustard Seed, but to help Mr. Peas Blossom to scratch. I must go to a barber's, Mr. Mustard Seed, for methinks I am marvelous hairy about the face. My sweet love, said the queen, what will you have to eat? I have a venturous fairy, shall seek the squirrel's hoard and fetch you some new nuts. I'd rather a handful of dried peas, said the clown, who with his ass's head had got an ass's appetite. But I pray, let none of your people disturb me, for I have a mind to sleep. Sleep then, said the queen, and I will wind you in my arms. Oh, how I love you, how I dote upon you. When the fairy king saw the clown sleeping in the arms of his queen, he advanced within her sight and reproached her with having lavished her favors upon an ass. This she could not deny, as the clown was then sleeping within her arms, with his ass's head crowned by her flowers. When Oberon had teased her for some time, he again demanded the changeling boy, which she, ashamed of being discovered by her lord with her new favorite, did not dare to refuse him. Oberon, having thus obtained the little boy, had so long wished for to be his page, took pity on the disgraceful situation into which, by his marrying contrivance, he had brought his Titania, and threw some of the juice of the other flower into her eyes, and the fairy queen immediately recovered her senses, and wondered at her late dotage, saying how she now loathed the sight of the strange monster. Oberon likewise took the ass's head from off the clown, and left him to finish his nap with his own fool's head upon his shoulders. Oberon and his Titania, being now perfectly reconciled, he related to her the history of the lovers and their midnight quarrels, and she agreed to go with him and see the end of their adventures. The fairy king and queen found the lovers and their fair ladies at no great distance from each other, sleeping on a grass plot, for Puck, to make amends for his former mistake, had contrived with the utmost diligence to bring them all to the same spot, unknown to each other, and he had carefully removed the charm from off the eyes of Lysander with the antidote the fairy king gave to him. Hermia first awoke, and finding her lost Lysander asleep so near her, was looking at him and wondering at his strange inconstancy. Lysander presently opening his eyes and seeing his dear Hermia recovered his reason, which the fairy charm had before clouded, and with his reason his love for Hermia. And they began to talk over the adventures of the night, doubting if these things had really happened, or if they had both been dreaming the same bewildering dream. Helena and Demetrius were by this time awake, and a sweet sleep having quieted Helena's disturbed and angry spirits, she listened with delight to the professions of love which Demetrius still made to her, and which, to her surprise, as well as pleasure, she began to perceive were sincere. These fair night-wandering ladies, now no longer rivals, became once more true friends. All the unkind words which had passed were forgiven, and they calmly consulted together what was best to be done in their present situation. It was soon agreed that as Demetrius had given up his pretensions to Hermia, he should endeavor to prevail upon her father to revoke the cruel sentence of death which had been passed against her. 
Demetrius was preparing to return to Athens for this friendly purpose when they were surprised with the sight of Aegeus, Hermia's father, who came to the wood in pursuit of his runaway daughter. When Aegeus understood that Demetrius would not now marry his daughter, he no longer opposed her marriage with Lysander, but gave his consent that they should be wedded on the fourth day from that time, being the same day on which Hermia had been condemned to lose her life. And on that same day, Helena joyfully agreed to marry her beloved and now faithful Demetrius. The fairy king and queen, who were invisible spectators of this reconciliation, and now saw the happy ending of the lover's history brought about through the good offices of Oberon, received so much pleasure that these kind spirits resolved to celebrate the approaching nuptials with sports and revels throughout their fairy kingdom. And now, if any are offended with this story of fairies and their pranks, as judging it incredible and strange, they have only to think that they have been asleep and dreaming, and that all these adventures were visions which they saw in their sleep. And I hope none of my readers will be so unreasonable as to be offended with a pretty, harmless Midsummer Night's Dream.